0: Today's scripture is from Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ,
1: Amen. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Austin. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Lydia. I'm a pastor here at Missio. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, um, just get a name that's a little warm in here. If it's your first time, I don't want you to think that we don't believe in air conditioning. We do. We highly value that here at Missio. For some reason today, it's a little funky, so feel free to fan yourself as necessary. Um, I'll probably be a hot, sweaty mess by the end of this, but It's good to be here this morning with you as we wrap up our series on Galatians as uh, we just heard Austin read from chapter 6. Before we dive into this last chapter, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this community, this space, that we can gather together as your people, your church. Spirit, remind us this morning that we belong to each other we are part of a body, your body, Jesus. Open our hearts and minds as we attune ourselves to your word this morning. Show us what life in the Spirit looks like. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So today, as I said, we are finishing up um, our study of Galatians, um, and if you have been here uh, the last few weeks as we've been going over this, this might be welcome news to some of you because you've been thinking, I have heard the word circumcision thrown around on a Sunday morning quite enough. Thank you very much. So if that's the case, you're probably happy about that. For those of you, for those of you who are just joining us, um, you might need a little refresher on what we've been talking about these last few weeks. Um, so here's sort of the gist. So in this letter, Paul is writing to a community of primarily Gentile Jesus followers in the area of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And the reason for this letter specifically is this issue of circumcision, right? Is circumcision still a requirement of Torah, of Jewish law? And then the bigger question behind this is what role does Jewish law and tradition now play if you are a Jesus follower, just because we're following Jesus, does that mean we still observe Torah? And now with the gospel reaching into these Gentile communities, the question is, Well, shouldn't we make them fall into line with, with Torah as well? Because this is what had been happening on the scene. These Gentile Jesus followers were getting pressure by the Jewish Jesus followers for various reasons, cultural, political, too much to get into. But they were getting pressured to become circumcised in accordance with Jewish law. And just a quick note, I'm not using the term Christian or Christianity or Judaism right now. Um, or even referring to the idea of people like converting from Judaism to Christianity, because it's important to understand that in the first century, Christianity wasn't really understood at this time as like a completely separate religion by the state, by like the empire, or even the believers themselves at this point. It's not like Christianity was a new religion on the scene and Judaism was this entirely different thing. At this time... To follow Jesus was, as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, he says, it was just to profess a new form of Jewish monotheism. The one God of Israel having now revealed himself in a fresh way as the God who sent his son and then the spirit of God. So it's more of a continuation, right? And so these distinctions between Judaism and Christianity that we're familiar with now those came much later. And I think that's just helpful to kind of know but beca- be- that because these distinctions weren't super clear, there was actually confusion about like, what exactly you're supposed to do with all these Jewish laws that at one point, not so long ago, held a lot of prominence and importance. And circumcision was the specific issue at hand, and you can kind of imagine why right? It's one thing to tell someone, hey, you got to eat kosher or hey, come celebrate this Jewish holiday and a bit of a taller order to be, to require a fully grown man to undergo some surgery, right? But it's an issue that can seem especially hard to relate to in our present context, not going to lie. Thankfully, this is not something that we have on our grid presently. But if we zoom out, we can see that really what's on the table, more generally, is a working out of what it looks like to be a faithful Jesus follower in the messy context of a diverse community. Johnny mentioned in his very first sermon on the series that what they're experiencing here is sort of a fragmented spirituality. And this we can relate to, right? You may have experienced this as recently as this week. Like, you might have asked yourself or found yourself thinking, how can a friend of mine think so differently on this student debt loan forgiveness than I do, and we're both using the Bible to back up our opposing views, right? How are we reading the same Bible? This has happened, I'm sure, a few times, but that's just one example. Part of Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to defend himself— from an accusation that he's getting from some, because of his position on this matter, on the law, they're saying he doesn't fully understand the truth of the gospel. That's the accusation that he's sort of defending himself. And so basically, the entire book of Galatians is him saying, wait a minute, back up. You're saying I'm the one who doesn't get the gospel? Because what you're saying is actually going Against what the gospel is saying, and we need to get this straight because it's extremely important before we do anything else. And I have to make this reference, I'm sorry, but it just reminded me, Paul's attitude here reminded me of one of my favorite TV shows, Parks and Recreation. Sorry if you don't watch, but if you do, Great, you'll enjoy this. It was one of my favorite scenes in Parks and Rec. You know how, like, on your favorite TV shows where they go, like, to Hawaii or, lo- or London or something like that? They go on location. I love those. But this is an episode where they go on location to London. And they get to London. All the characters are there. And sweet, silly, lovably, adorably dumb Andy Dwyer, played by Chris Pratt, um, he arrives in London. And the episode starts with this view of Buckingham Palace, and Andy, of course, says, Ooh, I can't believe we're going to see Hogwarts! And Ben, the other character, the kind of, like, serious guy, if you know the show, says, Andy, wait, that's Buckingham Palace. Hogwarts is fictional. Wait, you know that, right? It's important for me to know that you know that. And so just reminded me of that, because this, like Ben, this is something that Paul cannot let go. This is not a small matter to him, and it's very important that this gets straightened out, because nothing less than the fundamental truth of the gospel is what is at stake. So while we don't really tangle with, you know, whether we observe Torah or not anymore, we can sort of relate to this predicament that he's in, especially for those of us who are in the process of or have recently been in the process of deconstructing or reconstructing our faith. Because if you have been or are in that situation, you've been thinking about the question of what is the gospel, like really? And we're discovering, if you've been in that process, that some of the things that we were led to believe in our upbringing or whatever that were the gospel, that were actually part and parcel of the gospel, are actually not the gospel at all and in some cases, run counter to the gospel's very purposes. And so in this letter to this community of very early believers, Paul carefully lays out for them what the essence of the gospel is. What is the good news, and what exactly does it mean, not just for them, but for everyone, personally, but also communally, in the context of community? And so now in this final chapter, Paul is wrapping up everything, and in many ways, he's re articulating what he's laid out in the very first chapter. Scholars will tell you it's brilliant. Uh, so you can say that. You can be like, ah, oh, yes, I see that. You just nod your head. But running through both his introduction and his conclusion, and really throughout the letter, is this idea that what Jesus did on the cross changed the world forever. Because of that historical fact, Literally, nothing is the same, and I'll repeat that because I truly believe that all that Paul really cares about, anyone taking away from this letter, both now in 2022 and back then, is that is that fact, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he changed the world forever, and literally nothing is the same. And you might be thinking, well, thanks, Paul, via Lydia that's a statement that begs a lot of questions. (laughs) No worries. We can break this down. And this is kind of what the series has been about, you know, is sort of breaking these things down. So first off, what did Jesus do on the cross? In Galatians 1, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. You might remember that. But these are statements that you've probably heard that before if you've spent any time around the church. And we throw those statements around a lot, right? And we assume that others and that we know what we mean when we say them, right? But what does that mean, really? How are we to understand that? Well, One way to think about this rather abstract concept is, as I think Johnny pointed out in some previous sermons, is Jesus performed—oh, excuse me—Jesus— is on a rescue mission. This whole idea of forgiveness of sins is really, really nicely understood as a rescue mission. In his death and resurrection, Jesus performed a new exodus. Now, Johnny and I didn't come up with this explanation, by the way. It actually comes from Jesus himself. And we know this in part because he chose out to play out his death right during the time of Passover, if you remember, which is the holiday where Jews remembered and rehearsed the story of the Exodus. So Jesus very intentionally explained what he was about to do on the cross right smack dab in the middle of Passover, that meal that he shared with his disciples that we call the Last Supper. And his point was this, just like God liberated the Hebrews from their slavery to the Egyptians, he himself had been sent to liberate the world, the whole world, from the dark power of sin. This is the rescue mission. Because just as the Hebrews were in bondage to the Egyptians, the whole world was held in bondage to sin. It was stuck in its grip. But your next question might be, what's sin? How did it have its grip on the world exactly? Great question. And we've talked a little bit about what sin is in this series. We talked about how a lot of times sin gets reduced to a set of moral behaviors, do's and don'ts, right? Now, I think sin does, of course, include moral behavior. I firmly believe that. Murder is sin. Lying is sin. Cheating is sin. And I think that we would all agree in this room that these are all behaviors that one ought to avoid, right? Put all those on your don't list. But if we just reduce sin to things that we don't do or behaviors to avoid, I believe that we're operating out of an impoverished view of what sin is. It's actually too shallow a definition, Right now I'm reading uh, Rich Velotis, who some of you know and follow. He has this new book out called Good, Beautiful, and Kind, and I really love it, recommend it. Um, And he talks about sin at the very beginning of his book, and I like how he defines sin as, quote, the tendency we have to turn inward. Now he got this, he didn't make this up, he got this from fourth century church father, St. Augustine, who argued that all of humanity is, as he wrote in Latin, this is the Latin phrase, in curvatus in se or it's curved in on itself. And what he meant by this is that we're also naturally fixated on ourselves, so oriented inward that it's impossible to love God or others. So sin then is the obstacle, the stumbling block, the thing that gets in the way of fulfilling of what Paul notes in chapter five, verse 14 of Galatians, just a few Verses earlier, the very heart of the law of Christ, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, he says, is the sum total of the law. And we can't do that. We can't fulfill that law if we're curved inward. Last week, I really liked it when Johnny very helpfully noted that sin often looks like an attempt to seize control. And I was thinking about it and I was like, well, it's always really looked that way, right? Like, right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve attempted to seize control from God, they, they thought they knew better. To Sarah and Abraham, the story we talked about last week, where they decided to take matters into their hands when it came to child-rearing or child-bearing. They're like, we know better. We're not going to trust the promises of God. Just don't quite believe it. I better do it myself. Or it looked like David murdering Uriah to cover up his other sin of adultery, Let me make this better. Let me cover things up. It's a story that plays out over and over again, both in scripture and in our own lives. Whether we're talking about individuals or empires, which are made up of individuals, of course, sin manifests itself as a grasp for power because we're turned inward. Rich uh, writes more on this topic in the book, and he has this to say about sin. He says, sin turns us inward in such a way that we get stuck, horribly so. It causes us desire and illusion to center the world on our comfort, security, fear, desire, and personal perspective. It curves us inward, leaving little room for God or anyone else. And so, When Paul writes in Galatians 1-4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, he's reminding this community of believers that this is what the essence of the gospel is. That Jesus' death and resurrection liberated us from the death grip of sin. And now we no longer have to operate by its rules anymore. Before Jesus... We were slaves to sin. We could only turn inward. We could only think about ourselves. Now, how does the law play into this? The law, then, Torah, was actually a really helpful gift because before Jesus, it was our only hope for order, right? Paul explains this in Galatians 3. He says, The law was our only disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. I was thinking about this verse, and I like that word, uh, that word for disciplinarian in the Greek is pedagogos. You probably hear that Greek, it sounds like pedagogy, right? Like, you know, method of teaching. But what it meant was not like a traditional teacher. It wasn't that the law was just a regular teacher. This was actually a role, an actual role back in this time that was uh, performed by a slave who was put in charge of children, making sure that they didn't like step out of line behavior-wise um, until they, could, they came of age and were trusted to uh, act in accordance, you know, with good manners, in an appropriate manner. I kinda like that in some ways. Like, can we bring that back? Not the slave part, of course, but the idea that someone else is in charge of my children's behavior. I guess it's sort of like a nanny. But what came to mind is this image of like a substitute teacher um, holding down like a classroom full of like unruly little kids, uh, just inflicting chaos and mayhem, like paper airplanes, kind of like a scene in Hook with the lost boys like throwing icing everywhere. Like it's just total chaos. But now, Paul is saying that because of Jesus, everything has changed. Because of him, we are no longer relying on the law to keep us from being turned entirely in on ourselves. And we no longer have to do what the substitute teacher tells us to do, which was helpful for quite literally a limited time only. What Jesus has done has made everything so much better— because if you think about it, yes, substitute teacher is great. A guy making sure that you're not, you know, doing anything inappropriate out in public that you should be doing, that's great. But isn't it much better to be able to walk out on your own and like be trusted not to like, I don't know, pick your nose or give someone a wedgie? <laughs> it's much better. And so things like circumcision or dietary laws, all that stuff is useless now things that were very crucial and helpful at one time. They were great markers of faithfulness to the law at one time. But we don't need them anymore. And in fact, we should let go of them because they're obsolete. And now all they're really doing at this point is they're simply tools of exclusion and division, which is what Paul is pointing out. Because Jesus, because of what Jesus did, we're all children of the promise. We're one family now with no distinctions. We're all at the same table now Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. This is huge. This is super countercultural. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, he says. And new creation is everything. And that's what we are we're a new creation this world, or this present evil age, as he puts it, it may still be operating to these old ways, according to these old ways, according to these old hierarchies, because it's still enslaved to sin. But we know, we know the truth, that Christ has dealt the death blow. And so now our job, our calling, is to live into that truth. Paul argues throughout the book that actually to live, to go back to the old ways, to still function as if there's a substitute, is actually really to be living according to the world's ways, the flesh. He says you're just enslaving yourselves all over again. And so he points out in this chapter, our chapter for today, he says those who are pressing you over circumcision may look on the surface like they're obeying the law, but in reality they're just simply using you to make themselves look better. And in fact, they actually just want to exclude you, is what he says. Uh, I think N.T. Wright really helpfully drives this point home when he says, the new creation has been launched. And since Torah has done its job and is now set aside, it must be resisted. It cannot be the regulator in God's new world. That was not its purpose. Okay, so the law is something to be resisted now. But what's the new regulator? Who's in charge? What's going to hold down the fort in this present evil age, Paul? You just said present evil age, meaning it's still looking a certain way. If Christ's death and resurrection changed everything and we no longer need the law, then how are we to live then? What marks us as heirs to this promise? If we're no longer being marked by keeping kosher or observing circumcision, what is that marker of faithfulness? That's the question. Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the only thing that counts now is faith working through love. And now we're free to love because God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts. And so as God's children, we can live in freedom now, to live by the Spirit, which looks like the fruit of the Spirit, which we talked about last week. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I grew up saying goodness, and now I feel like it's more popular translation is generosity. So I always have to stop myself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, and self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, is what Paul says we're crucified to the world in its ways. So now we can live by the Spirit, be guided by the Spirit. We're no longer curved inward. We're oriented outward, and we're empowered by the Spirit to love and serve others. It's a really powerful sort of like crescendo of this letter. That's how he ends chapter five, and so that brings us to his final words in Galatians 6. And I love it because what we get in these final verses in chapter 6 is kind of like a Q&A type session, um, except without his Galatian audience like actually posing a question. It's just kind of inferred. Because he's just finished this like beautiful rhetorical flourish. He's listed out the very famous, you know, fruits of the spirit and how they should define our life in the household of Christ. But then it's almost like someone raised their hand in the back, you know, and was like, okay, like, you know, there's always that person. I'm that person. After you hear something really great and beautiful moving, you're like, but wait a minute, hold up. Because it's almost like Paul anticipates this. Because in this section, he acknowledges pretty straightforwardly that there's going to be times in the community where we fail to live according to the Spirit. They're going to miss the mark. Sin will happen. So what do you do in those instances? And so he starts off This chapter, as Austin read, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, he says. Pretty, pretty clear, right? Part of life in the Spirit is restoring others when things go wrong. But man, easier said than done, right? Especially today when one of the worst charges you can bring against someone is to call them, like, the J-word, judgmental. And it's so easy to be accused of that these days, right? Especially in the Western world, which has sort of defined love as, like, I like how John Mark Comer puts it. He's like, basic, love is basically just not disagreeing with anyone. So I think in at least some cases, this idea of bringing up someone's behavior when they've not exactly exhibited the fruits of the Spirit is a sort of a deeply uncomfortable notion to us, and not really because we love that person and we don't want to hurt them, but because we're concerned about how that's going to make, how's that going to make us look. We don't want the label of judgmental person anywhere near us, and so in a lot of cases, we avoid doing that. But, as Paul tells us, that's not what life in the Spirit looks like. He doesn't say, if someone is detected in a transgression, just look the other way! it's too confrontational. You're probably going to look bad. It's going to be an awkward conversation. They'll probably figure it out on their own. It'll be fine. No. He actually says to reach out to that person in a spirit of gentleness with a mind to restoration, right? Not condemnation because to do so, he says, is to actually bear one another's burdens. This, in fact, Will fulfill the law of Christ. The same one he said a few verses earlier sums up the entire law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's because we belong to each other. Slaves to one another in love is actually what he says, which is pretty radical, right? We're slaves to one another in love that we can't look the other way when someone transgresses. Life in the Spirit means living differently than the world. It should and ought to look different. What Paul is advocating for here is what New Testament scholar Sarah Henrik says. I love this phrase. She says, it's radical mutuality. When I fail, because we are part of one family, because we are united in Christ, because we are bound in love, it's my responsibility to help you and for you to help me when one of us has failed, because it's as if The other person has failed. It's like I have failed. It's like you have failed when I fail and vice versa, right? This is the way of Jesus. The way of the world says, it's your problem. You fix it. I don't want to get involved. It's too messy. Plus, I may look bad. Like, you do you. Because, again, we naturally want to turn inward, but the life, life in the spirit means we do step in. In love, of course. That's the big caveat here, right? We have to be guided by the spirit. If we're not guided by humility, gentleness, love, mutuality, then all bets are off. Please hear me. It <laughs> has to be done in the context of relationship. Change group, even. I was thinking about when Brian was reading that announcement, holding each other accountable. It has to be done in the appropriate context, of course. But Jesus disagreed with people all the time right? So we have a model, but he always did it in love. But again, it's like this Q&A session. Paul anticipates that someone's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, because he warns against this too. He says, don't think yourself above this person that you're admonishing. Any boasting should lie, as he says in verse 14, not in anything would we achieve on our own, but what the cross has achieved. The cross has, achi- has changed everything. And because of it, the spirit of Christ now resides inside of us and shapes us both personally and communally. N.T. Wright writes, as a result of the cross, all full members of God's people, thus released from the power of sin and death, belong at the same table identity is formed and reinforced through the shared meal of the whole people of god i love that it's a beautiful image and johnny actually began the series if you recall um talking about this is what the gospel looks like right he offered this image which of course he got from jesus um, of a dinner table that's the gospel Coincidentally, I've been, watching, I've been thinking about dinner and food because I've been watching the show The Bear on Hulu. I don't know if any of you have watched this. Um, it's really great. Highly recommend it. I've watched it twice, actually. That's how much I liked it. Um, but it's a story where um, the main character, Carmi, who's on the right there, he's a young, talented chef um, who, upon the suicide of his uh, older brother, he inherits his Chicago diner. And so Carmi leaves the fussy, fancy restaurant world to run this, his brother's uh, sort of dingy and super chaotic uh, Chicago diner. It's a sandwich shop, actually. And if you've watched the show, you're probably like me. You found it entertaining, but you also have thought two things. One, I really want a Chicago beef sandwich. Like, really want to plan a trip just to have a beef sandwich because it looks so good. And two... Working in a restaurant kitchen looks extremely stressful, like one of the top five worst jobs. <laughs> if you've seen the show, you know what I mean. But one of the things I really love about this depiction um, is, this, is how it, this kitchen, this restaurant kitchen, um, it's like a little community. It's actually like a little family is how it is portrayed. They know and they care about like, each other's like, personal lives. They know about like, their kids' recitals. They ask. They care about these things. They know about like, their parents' health. Um, each day at the end of the prep before they open the restaurant for dinner, they have family meal, which I think is a practice in a lot of restaurants, but they have family meal and they each take turns who cooks it for everybody. And it's like a beautiful scene. They even go around talking about what they're thankful for. It's like, oh, this is so lovely. Um, and on top of this sort of like communal familial practice, uh, Carmi, the owner and operator, he insists when he starts the job, he says that everybody in the kitchen should be addressed as chef, no matter what job they have, dishwasher, dishwasher chef, whatever. As a sign of respect. But despite all this loveliness, (laughs) uh, everything is functioning as a total disaster. It's really bad. Everyone is screaming and blaming each other. Nothing is efficient. It's a wreck. No one is owning their own workspace. They're cursing at each other. People are refusing to help each other. They're like, you don't do that job. I do that job. It is not going well. It may be a family, but it's a totally dysfunctional family. But there's a moment that I really loved, it stood out to me, and here, this is where it is. It's an episode three, and and Carmi is joining his sous chef, Sydney, the girl on the left here, and they're having a break on the roof at the end of a very difficult day. And even though she really admires Carmi, because he's a really talented guy, it's why she even wants to work in this really crappy diner, and he is her boss, she kind of lets him have it in this scene. She chides him for not listening to her or to anyone else. And she says, we need to try to listen to each other. I think this place could be so different from all the other places we've been at, she says. And she's referring to sort of the abusive environment that characterizes so many restaurant kitchens, which I've heard is true. But she says, in order for that to be true, we need to run things different because they're both tired of the toxicity and the harshness of all their previous experiences. They're tired of that, they don't want that. And they both share this vision of what a functioning, healthy workplace could be, where everyone thrives, everyone flourishes, and they really long for that. They wanna make that happen. But as she says, they have to do things different. They have to lean into all elements of being a family listening, respect, love, and mutuality. And I think that's basically what Paul is saying here. Because the truth of the gospel is that Jesus' death and resurrection has launched a new world. A world that's no longer under the grip of sin, no longer we're all curved inward, focused on ourselves only, each person for themselves, It doesn't have to be that way. Instead, the cross has ushered us into a new world, one marked by justice and truth and goodness and love and beauty. And now, all Jesus followers are called to recognize that, that we now live in that new world and to live accordingly and to live differently. As one family, we are called to live into that reality living as the new creation that we are. Missio, before we come to this table together as one family, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit that guides us into all truth. We confess now that we don't always live into the new reality of your kingdom, God. Forgive us for what we have done and what we have left undone, where we've forgotten to love. Grow us into your spirit. Let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.